when you think about sort of like the future of interest rates, you know, I think the Fed has no choice but to raise the short end even higher right now because they're looking at the 9.1% CPI reading and they're sort of rear view focused people there, right? They, they look at CPI and they look at the unemployment rate basically. And the unemployment rate's so low and CPI is so high that they're going to just keep raising until they see evidence of something breaking. So unless you start to see like meaningful declines in the year over year CPI number, and they could probably tolerate some unemployment before they do anything, um, that'll probably take a while before that unwinds. You know, I think probably toward the end of the year, early next year is probably when you'll start. To see I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19 year old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome to the Rise and Invest podcast. I'm Drew Brenneman. We're back with another episode today. Today's guest is Phil McAllister. Welcome. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, Phil and I, we've known each other, but really just sort of online. We're, we're both on, on Twitter a bit and kind of saw Phil put out some things that I really, really resonated with me, some takes that I, I, I really agree with or things that I've explained to people pretty often and see someone putting out uh, something similar and also some really unique insights. So I wanted to get him on the podcast today and pick his brain. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to do it. Great. Well, yeah, I think before we dive in, if, if we could just want to mention, just remind everybody to you know like and subscribe and leave a review for the podcast. If you can, that really just helps others hear, hear about the podcast, get the word out and, and get, you know, more, more great guests like, like Phil here. So awesome. great. Well, yeah. Why don't, if you just want to maybe give a quick intro on yourself and then let's jump in. Sure. Yeah. Phil McAllister, uh, real estate guy by trade, um, work kind of larger real estate deals nationwide. Uh, but here in a personal, personal capacity, just, um, kind of based on what you talked about, I like to also spend some time in the research kind of macroeconomic field and, and, um, put my thoughts out there. So just, uh, excited to kind of get into it. Yeah. Great. What's your, do you have like a degree in, uh, finance and economics was kind of my double major back in college. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Cause I know it's a, it's a passion, but then also you were, you know, had some training in it too. So. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of the like academic side of economics, you almost have to forget about. And I learned that the hard way as you start getting into like the numbers and figuring out what, what works and what doesn't like a lot of it is like the stuff the the people at the fed are reading about or something. It's just kind of like dry theoretical stuff and half of it doesn't even apply. So you almost had like a secondary education in the real world, uh, you know, after, after college. So that's interesting. What's something that then didn't, uh, that and once you got to the real world was different maybe then well a lot of it is is theoretical right so you'll hear things like uh the phillips curve uh which is the idea that you know employment and inflation have a clear trade-off between the two and people are talking about that right now with what's been going on with inflation um and then it turns out that if you actually take the time to read the paper that was released by uh by phillips um he actually even says that it's specific to weight you know real wages and not the general price level 
Um, so a lot of what people say about like, well, general prices are going to rise when unemployment's low. There's like no statistical relationship between the two in real life. And like, it's just complete nonsense basically. So, and it's basically then mis like misquoted out there, right. if you will, right. applied to something else. Interesting. Yeah. Or people will just assume that, Hey, you know, unemployment's low. So inflation is going to be higher right now. There's no evidence that, that actually happens in the real world. His study was actually based on real wages at a time when like the gold standard was in place. And so he proved that when, when the unemployment rate was low, real wages would rise, which is like econ 101, right? Because there's less supply for labor, so you got to raise the rate. But nothing about like general inflation at all was like inferred by that. Yet, you know, half the economists out there still talk about it like it like it matters. You know? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And just I'll keep trying to, if we start getting into terms, I'll try to be, you know, help help define them. But, you know, real wages, that's a factor in inflation in that. Right. Right. So right. then that's where, right, that's, uh, that's the, yeah, that makes, makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to, to hear yeah, that kind of comes up with, um, you know, it could start controversial right away with uh, like rent control. It's interesting to hear people <laughs> talk about that where, you know, how like if you took even Econ 101, you know, less supply, it's going to make the prices go up on what's not restricted. Right. And oh, yeah. And it's it's one of those things where you get, I'm assuming, well-intentioned people that yeah. are pretty smart people and they think that, you know, the economy is this machine and if I turn this knob or make twist that variable, then I'll get this output. But in the real world, that's just not the way that it works. And you really can't outsmart the economy. You know, it's like rent control is like um, one of many examples of that, where I kind of think of um, like one of those kids toys where it's kind of like a water balloon. And if you squeeze it on one side, it just bulges out on the other. And if you squeeze it over here, it'll just bulge over there. So like you can't actually make the balloon bigger. You're just kind of like <laughs> trying right. to squeeze it around. And if you squeeze it on both ends, it'll just, it'll just burst. Right. And that's like with rent control, it's the same thing, right? If you, if you cap the level at which rents can go, all you're going to do is, you know, also create this big gap between the demand and the supply for units. And then you get kind of a lot of the problems that you see in places that have the rent control. Right. And then yeah. if you, you know, if you get less development and then you're going to have less supply, Right. Less supply that would move prices up, right? And or, the quality of the housing stock gets worse, right? Because landlords have no incentive to improve it if you can't raise the rents. So, um, it's just a lot of a lot of secondary problems that just aren't really th well thought out. Yeah, with that process. I mean, you, yeah, you really see that in like cities like LA, where mm -hmm. you know you you have the rents are so high on the non-rent controlled units right. because all that demand's being pushed on just those, and then right, a lot of the rent controlled, you know, older older units they they're not in great shape because right these folks are there's no there's no turnover of the units there's no ability to um you know invest in your property and raise the the value or income right from it while the people are living there right so and then of course you get the people gaming the system right trying to hold on to their rent control units and then go have like a second home somewhere else which is yeah all kinds of i stuff, saw a tweet know? about that the one guy who tweets about joshua tree california a lot, oh, right yeah where yeah. someone who is buying a property from him i think rents a uh has a rent controlled unit as a tenant in LA and they're buying like a million something dollar house in Joshua tree. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. But then, yeah, I think so. One of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast, I mean, one of many, but like you had a really great take on something that I feel like I explain a lot. So I wanted to get you on here and talk about that. But, uh, so interest rates are obviously a hot topic now and the fed. And I can't tell you how many times and you probably had to deal with the same thing, but some, someone you're talking to says the Fed's going to raise rates mm -hmm. by 75 bips, 25 bips, whatever it is. And the bips, that's just the, you know, 0.01% yep. of, of a percent of a percent. So I guess I said percent twice there, but that's, <laughs> um, so one, you know, 
10 basis points would be 0.10%. Right. So if uh, it's easier to say it with basis point than 0.01. But if, um, so uh, many people have the, the understanding uh, incorrectly where if the Fed's going to raise 25 basis points, say on the Fed funds rate, that means mortgages, whatever, are going to move up exactly 25 bips. And so what, how does that actually, what's the actual impact? How, how do, how would you explain to somebody? Yeah. So the Fed, basically they can do two things or as of now they're doing two things. They change the federal, federal funds rate and then they can do the QE thing. What we're talking about now is really the federal funds rate, right? Which is an overnight rate that banks can lend to each other or they can go to the Fed to get that money. So the federal funds rate essentially pins the short end of the yield curve pretty close to wherever they're going to set that federal funds rate because you can either go to them or you could go to a repo market or, or whatever. So, you know, three months and under that stuff's going to track very closely to the federal, federal funds rate up to about two years. You'll still see a really good correlation on the, on the yield curve. Once you get to like five to seven years, it starts getting pretty murky. And by we're talking time you about get the to treasuries. So treasuries, two year right. treasuries, five year, seven year. Right. And by the time you get to like a 10 year treasury up to like 30, there's very little, if any relationship between what the Fed's doing with the Fed funds rate and what's actually happening on the long end of the curve. And then you get into on top of that sort of risk-free curve, there's a, a spread associated with all those other loans. So whether it be a mortgage loan or a business loan or <clears throat> business issuing bonds, the lender's going to bake a spread in on top of that risk-free rate to, to compensate them for making a loan to a, a borrower that carries risk. So those are the components that are going to move around when the Fed raises raises rates. But you can't think of the of the term interest rates as like one singular right. thing. It's they raise one particular rate, which affects some other rates differently than other rates. But it's not not by any means like a one to one relationship. And you know, I, I tweeted about it. I actually posted. You know, you know who doesn't think the Fed controls the ten year rates? The Fed. And I and I linked to a, an article on the Federal Reserve website. Um, that actually show that where they say, you know, the, the, the impact on the 10 year, you can't really see it based on what they're doing with the Fed funds rate. So um, the 10 year rate is really based on the economy's expectation or the market's expectation of economic growth and inflation. So it's kind of like what you're seeing now, right? We just saw a big CPI number come up, inflation's coming up. 10 year actually went down because, you know, the market is anticipating, yes, the Fed's going to raise the short end higher, but going forward, that's going to mean economic growth is actually lower and the prospect for inflation continuing higher is actually less. So you're getting the yield curve inverting for that very reason. So um, in that instance, it's a good example of how, you know, the Fed's certainly not pushing the long end up at all. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Even when, and usually the context and yeah, that was the tweet I was referring to, or that I thought was great. Cause I, I didn't have a source to point people to, I just need to explain it, but now it's like, well, here, take a look at this uh, article from the fed where right. they say that they don't even do it but also right to your point where that's not you know you're you're taking out a, a commercial loan and you're thinking the feds is moving your rate in a one-to-one -one relationship there's not usually these commercial loans are more priced off of either where let's say like the 10-year treasury is plus a spread or some of these they're really more the the end, end lender or buyer of it they're also looking at investing in commercial bonds and so like or sorry, corporate bonds. And so you, um, you know, you, you have, there's a relationship with that. That's probably more indicative of what your rate would be. And so that's doesn't have as nearly as much to do with the fed right. and it has, and also to like rates just ran up. So like then 
depends on what your bank's doing or your lender. Like, are they going to widen their spread or are they going to reduce it? Right. So I talked to some banks recently and they're saying, we're just, we're tightening our spreads. I don't know if it's believable or not, but they're like, the rates are so high. We're just, we're trying to um, do something here to make it make sense to, you know, take a loan from us. Right. So then that, if you, you know, it's, you don't know what's going to happen with that component either. So there's a lot of moving pieces to, Right. You're right. Yeah, exactly. And you brought up a good point, too, about the way banks will treat that spread, right? In a situation where the banks are perceiving that there's a lot more risk out there in the economy, that spread might widen. But right now, there's a ton of banks out there with a ton of money to lend, right? So as the the underlying treasury goes up, if they want to stay competitive, they're going to lower those spreads so that the all-in rate actually doesn't go up as much as you would think either. So a million moving parts, really complicated, and the Fed has... Very little to do with it at that end. Now, if you are if you have a loan that's based on SOFA rate, right, that SOFA rate is another overnight rate that's going to track really closely with the Fed funds rate. So if the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, that SOFA rate is going to go up in almost a one-to-one relationship. But then still, there's going to be a spread over the SOFA rate. The caps that you might have to buy with a floating rate loan are going to change. So you're still, you're all in borrowing costs still isn't going to change. But on those, you know, variable rate loans, you will see a closer impact. Um, but once you get to the, the stuff that's priced off of the 10 year, it, there's, there's no point in even really trying to think about what the fed fund rate is. And then, so longer term commercial, uh, commercial loans. So on investment real estate, let's say, what do you think those, if they're tied to anything, probably most closely to 10 year treasury or the treasury that corresponds with the, what do you think would be the answer on that? Yeah, it's usually, I mean, the bank's usual quote you, right? Like a 10 year treasury plus 160 over or something like that, right? So, so yeah, you have that base component, which is whatever risk-free rate they're going to use and then whatever spread they're going to tack on. So, um, yeah, if you're looking at a 10-year loan, it's going to be the 10-year treasury and then based on supply and demand factors and, and risk tolerance, what what's the spread going to be over that, basically, is the way you think about it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and I because that... And then some we've done on some deals, like things we're going to hold longer term, you know, loans that have swaps yeah. on them. And so that, you know, a lot of times you're being quoted as this, it's this, it's the, this year, it's, let's say you're doing a five-year loan. It's the five-year swap rate. Right. Plus, a, you know, plus a spread. Right. So that's, that's why I've never, um, sometimes I feel like, yeah, it's right tied in with the 10-year treasury. And that's how I used to think I was pricing my agency loans, you know, Freddie and Fannie, mm-hmm. where they'd be look at the 10 year and that's roughly what happened is what happened to your rate. But then I, I feel like that was not as obvious of a relationship maybe anymore for me, at least. I don't know if that's. Yeah. Well, it depends, right? If you're doing, if you're doing five year loans or seven year loans, it's going to be more based on, on that other piece of it too. And yeah. And swap rates don't always behave the same either. So it all kind of depends on the underlying structure of your specific deal. You know? Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And then for, um, what, any thoughts on, so you mentioned SOFR. I mean, so a lot of these floating rate deals, the, the index that they were used, so for variable rate loans, um, switch from LIBOR to SOFR. That's something I haven't studied up on the differences between the two. Is that you got any knowledge? Of that? I don't have any super useful insights on that. I mean, I haven't looked at specifically what changed, but I think the, the basic idea is the same. And, and it's just looking at sort of those you know, short-term lending rates between banks and then, you know, pricing loans off of that. So um, I think they behave relatively similar to each other and it's probably just mechanically, you know, slightly different, but uh, you know, for dumb real estate guys like us probably doesn't make a big difference. Yeah. Okay. No, I know. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't uh, study up on the difference. I know this is just, if you want to do that type of loan, this is what everyone's moved to. I I did study up on the different types of sulfur. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, some loans are done where it's a, 
the rates based on the 30-day average of SOFR. Right. Then there's a rate called term SOFR. I saw something quoted with daily SOFR. <laughs> and really, like, I think they all kind of, you end up getting the same thing. It just kind of depends where you start. Like, if rates are rising, you know, either the, probably the 30-day average is going to be the lowest because you're, you're grabbing some right. rates from before when they were lower. But I don't know if that ends up really mattering because whenever rates come down, there you're gonna your rate will stay higher longer. I would right. think it's got it's got like a partial lag on that. Right. Yeah. It's so. almost like the preference of the lender, basically. Yeah. What do you? Uh, and maybe that's something to jump into. Do you have any thoughts on when the? So we've just had interest rates run up a, a lot. We're we're shooting this in uh, mid to late July here, 2022, and rates have ran up a lot. You have any? What are you kind of thinking could happen where I had heard, or I guess to set up the question fully, I had heard someone say on the, so when the Fed raises rates from the first rate cut, sorry, from the first time the Fed raises rates to the first rate cut, the shortest time that it's ever been was two something years and the longest time was three something years. Yeah, it's so, a, good, a good question. I mean, I think first of all, you have to almost like throw a lot of history out the window when you have a situation like this, because we're just seeing something that's really never happened before. You know, you get this like global pandemic and this insane amount of, you know, stimulus and, and federal reserve money printing and all this stuff. And then it kind of whipsaws back and forth. So it's really tough to know, like based on historical standards, what's going to happen this time. Uh, and you also got to remember that the fed is full of human beings that you know have human emotions and like it's really hard to game like a political beast like that and figure out what exactly they're going to do um but generally speaking i think the important like analysis you have to go through is you have to you have to really separate the short end of the curve from the long end of the curve and you gotta understand that pretty much whatever the fed decides they want to do at the short end of the curve they can do it um and then but the long end of the curve is really going to respond to what's going on in the economy so if you look at what's actually happening in the economy right now you have, at least in rate of change terms, you have pretty much everything decelerating right now, whether it be, you know, the new orders component of the ISM indexes or the, or the Federal Reserve surveys, all the regional feds like Philadelphia, Richmond, Chicago, they all do their own surveys. Everything's headed down and pretty quickly. Consumer sentiments, as bad as it is in the deepest recessions. Um, a small business survey uh, sentiment just came out, just horrible, you know, like as bad as you'll see in any recession. Um, so all that stuff is sort of pointing in the wrong direction for like robust economic growth. Um, and I think all of this high inflation, I think is kind of peaking out right now. I think that um, that'll start to come down toward the end of the year as well. So at the long end of the curve, it's really pointing to rates starting to have more downside than upside based on where they're at now. And it's already starting to happen, right? Mid, mid June, I think 10 year hit like 348 and now it's below three again already. So it's been like a month, right? And it's already knocked 60 basis points off. Um, so when you think about sort of like the future of interest rates, you know, I think the Fed has no choice but to raise the short end even higher right now because they're looking at the 9.1% CPI reading and they're sort of rear view focused people there, right? They, they look at CPI and they look at the unemployment rate basically. And the unemployment rate's so low and CPI is so high that they're going to just keep raising until they see evidence of something breaking. So unless you start to see like meaningful declines in the year over year CPI number, and they could probably tolerate some unemployment before they do anything, um, that'll probably take a while before debt unwinds. You know, I think probably toward the end of the year, early next year is probably when you'll start to see, you know, CPI actually 
on a year over year basis being as low as we're used to seeing it or close to it. Because if you think about it right now, even if like on a month to month sequential basis, CPI just goes straight sideways or even down a little bit, the year over year increases are going to be really high because of what they're comping to from the year before. Right. So until you kind of catch up to those comps toward the end of the year, um, those year over year numbers are going to be high. So the Fed's going to look at that and they're just going to keep keep hiking. But what I think you'll see is that the long end of the curve is just going to, it's not going to budge and the short end is just going to keep going up. And even though the twos and tens are already inverted, now you're going to start to see like the three month treasury move closer and closer to inverting against the 10 year. Uh, and then typically what happens then is you get the recession and the higher unemployment and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And the reason that the 10 year, just to try to explain this further, if so, the, the yield on the 10 year would go down because more people are buying 10 year treasuries because they're anticipating, uh, let's say uh, just, uh, not a good return from the other risk assets. There might be a recession coming. So they want to get their money in treasuries. That's where you're going with where you could see rates, dropping with the 10-year or why would the 10-year rate continue to drop? Yeah, so in shorter term intervals, you know, when people want more risk-free return relative to where else they can put their capital, they're going to put it in 10-year bonds and 20 and 30-year treasury bonds, right? So there's going to be buying pressure from that. Um, and then just more generally, if you look at what actually drives the long end of the curve, 10 to 30 years, and that is the market and investors trying to essentially handicap where they think uh, inflation and GDP growth is going to be in the future. So, you know, in a situation like we have right now, the way you got to think about it is there's there's a, a sort of a structural component to GDP growth and then there's a cyclical component to it. And the structural component to GDP growth hasn't changed at all after all this stuff. Basically, it's going to be how many people are working and how productive are those people. When you sort of wash everything out and just do the math on it, that's what's going to drive your GDP growth. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? All of the goods and services in the economy, you add up the value of all of them. And that's essentially how much, how much people are making is, is, is what is available to, to consume in the economy. Um, so if you look at those numbers and the trends behind those numbers, that's going to be driven by, you know, your workforce growth and your productivity rate. And none of that has really budged in, 50 years, right? Like you had the, the big peak in the 70s and 80s. And since then, and you can track it really closely with CPI, with, with nominal GDP growth, but that, that growth in the workforce has just been steadily coming down since then to the point where now it's, you know, zero, one, one and a half percent workforce growth. So you can't grow an economy faster than you're growing the workforce over long periods of time. Yeah. Um, and then and then you tack on their productivity, right? As they, as they get more productive, the same amount of workers can make more stuff, so you can tack that on. And when you add those two together, structurally speaking, GDP should grow at like one, one and a half, two percent, maybe two and a half percent. That's kind of like what's baked in the cake for GDP growth going forward. So the long end of the yield curve is going to reflect that plus some idea for inflation. And inflation also, over the long term, when you have an economy that your workers aren't growing, your demographic is aging, you know, those older people don't spend very much money. Um, it's really hard to constantly have demand pushing faster than supply. So the if you look at Japan, you look at Europe, you look here, you look anywhere, as that demographic trend rolls over and as the workforce starts to grow really, really slowly, there's very little inflation in any of those economies. And I think that's what we have going on sort of as our base case right now. So, you know, one, one and a half, two plus 
some small amount of inflation. So, you know, 150 to 250, maybe 350 at the high end for a 10-year yield would probably make sense bouncing around in that range. Um, and then when the economy is cycling down, you would expect the 10-year to be toward the bottom of that range. And when the economy is running hot, you expect it to be sort of towards the, the high end of that range. So that's kind of the, the, the base case for, for those rates. And I think the people that are looking at this inflation and, and saying that it's going to be some sort of like long-term thing like we had in the 70s, I think they're just not looking at sort of those underlying factors that are kind of telling us that this is more of like a one-off thing that's going to correct itself over time. And what was the range you gave for the uh, the, the treasuries? I think the 10 years probably going to be like 150 to three is probably going to be where you'll see it bounce around. Uh, you know, it might overshoot or undershoot depending on how good or bad the economy is doing cyclically. But I think that that's really where that growth and in inflation uh, is going to make the market want to want to be. Um, and obviously shorter term, anything can happen. But I think sort of longer term, that's where I see things headed. Um, and I think it's going to be, you know, you can look at Japan or Europe as good examples of that, right? Because they're kind of right ahead of us on those demographic trends and, and a little bit worse than us. So you can kind of see how their economies have tracked that. And, and as you just get that slow growth and that low inflation, those long bonds just kind of hang around toward the end of the or toward the low end of the range. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. I mean, we're still relatively young. I mean, I got started doing real estate in 2005. And mm -hmm. so, you know, where, well, what was happening in the seventies when rates were 12, none of these, you know, kids seen this, you know, and, right. but the thing is, is things are a lot different now, you know, there's where, right. For all the trends you're talking about where, and the whole economy is really, it's not, uh, I mean, a lot of the government's borrowing is longer term. You're talking about 30 year, 10 year treasuries are taking out. But I mean, this, the whole system is almost now just like set up for lower rates right. as well, where I'd be, so that's a kind of, I don't, I'm sure I don't understand that as well as you do, but that's something I've thought about as well is where, right, we're not growing that fast. We're getting increased productivity. So the way you broke that down, the math, that makes a lot of sense for how GDP growth could be in the ones all the time, because that's how the population's growing. And then you add on a little bit more for increased productivity, but it's not going to be like, you know, some of these countries where they're printing out, you know, these, you know, huge figures like China, which who right. knows what those are even about. Cause they don't, I don't think they have much population growth, but somehow they're just, right. You know, right. Yeah. So, and then the only thing that's going to increase it over that kind of baseline level is if you find some way to add workers in, right. So it could be immigration, could be a change in the participation rate for labor. Um, which doesn't seem likely for us. Uh, and immigration's been down for us as well. And then obviously, if the unemployment rate is high, cyclically, like if you have a recession, unemployment rate goes to 10 or something, then as the economy turns back to growth and you start pulling those people back in and working your, your unemployment rate down, then you'll have growth rates in the threes and fours until you get back to that like, you know, low kind of full employment level. Um, but that's really the only that's really the only way mathematically for that to happen. And when people talk about, rates in the 70s, it's like, okay, well, what else was going on in the 70s? You had the most incredible population boom in the history of mankind, you know, relative to what the existing population was when those baby boomers came through. It was just insane. And, you know, labor force growing at, you know, 3% a year, 4% a year, um, and, you know, outpacing the economy's ability to supply the goods and services for it. So you just had this relentless inflation because you have people that are, you know, starting their lives, getting new jobs, buying houses, doing all that stuff, you know, bank credits expanding, credit cards came to be pretty big during that time period. So um, 
all of those things were, you know, a lot of inelastic demand from those people because they don't like, you know, when you're 24 years old and you buy a new house, like you just need the couch. You're not going to be like, Oh darn it. Couches are expensive. Now I better not buy one. Like you're not going to sit on the floor, right? Like right. you're going to, you're going to buy the stuff you need. So, and, and that whole dynamic is just not around anymore. So to, to go back to that kind of growth and inflation, you'd have to, you know, sell me on some reason why, we could expect that to happen when you only have your workforce growing at 1% a year and everybody's kind of old now at this point. So, you know, that's where I think people get a little bit lost is that they just see a high inflation number and they say, let's comp that to what, what else do I know? Right. Let me find my next comp and your comp is the seventies. So you just assume that it's going to look like that when the fundamental reasons for it are just so different, right? You had, you had, you know, that fundamental growth story versus now where you just have like the government, taking a bunch of money and cramming it in there. So you get like this one time shot where everybody's got a bunch of money that they're trying to spend and the economy can't, you know, support it all or, or supply all the, all the stuff they want. But as soon as that money goes away, there's no more people being born. There's no more massive you know, growth in the workforce. So where's that demand going to come from? It basically just got pulled forward, not, you know, created in a sustainable way. Right. So then when, I guess, given that, when, when do you think inflation is going to, you said some point next year we'll start seeing numbers go back to more normal inflation numbers or what's sort of the I think so say? I think it's going to be probably early to mid next year and I've already been early on this for sure because um, if you look at kind of the way things were trending toward the middle of 2021 um, you were starting to see things roll over um, back then and then started to head down a little bit um, in early 2022 and then the Russia invasion happened and you had oil go crazy gas go crazy um, and but to be clear that didn't have that didn't have anything to do with why the inflation started but it certainly had a big impact on it stretching out for a while and you could even see that if you look at you know the five-year break-even inflation rate or the five-year forward inflation rate which are when you like um, you could look right at the end of February when when Russia invaded you know the rate was kind of coming down and inflation expectations were coming down and then it just shoots up and now it's been working its way down again, but that certainly had like a several month prolonging period on it. And I think something like that, you know, is always in the cards. You never know what's going to happen on the short term. But if things kind of stay the way they are now with, you know, real incomes going down, production going down, um, it's going to be really hard to see inflation stay at these levels. I think we may have seen the high in the year over year um, and then it should start to trickle down. But you don't start hitting the really high comps until like December, January, February. So that's going to be when those year-over-year numbers really start to come down. Um, because kind of like I referenced earlier, if even if month-over-month month inflation actually goes down a little bit right now, it's still just going to be big increases because of how much it shot up in the meantime. So I think that's kind of what you'll see is that, you know, sequentially, the month-over-month month change will start looking a lot more like it used to look, um, which would you know, equate to eventual year-over-year year growth in the 2 3 4% range. But... When you start taking a month over, you know, the monthly year over year change, it's going to take a, take a while for that to start chipping its way down. Yeah, and then yeah. To, so to get in where you're you're starting your year over year comp from a like a high number, really that's so once you get into like December 2022, then you'd say now you're comparing with December 2021 when there was high inflation. Yeah, basically okay. somewhere around there. You know, I don't know when the exact month yeah. is going to be, but when you look back to kind of what was you know, when inflation was ramping up toward the end of last year again. Now this year, when you'll have kind of a softening economy comparing to that year, then that's when you'll start to see that year-over-year number. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of what you're seeing in Treasuries already, right? You're seeing 
not only the inflation expectations in the bond market, but also the 10-year through the 30-year treasury kind of sagging already, right? Because I think the market knows that, uh, you know, if, if the market believed that inflation was going to be 9% for a long time, you just wouldn't be able to buy bonds at 3%. Why would you make negative 6% of your money, right? So um, I think we're kind of already seeing that, and it's just going to take some time for it to actually filter through the numbers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And also, too, and to your point on, on energy and uh, Russia, Ukraine, where, yeah, when I, I was watching CNBC and they had a, they were explaining what was up the most. Um, and, you know, energy was, you know, like such a huge component that in, in housing, obviously, of like big things driving uh, the inflation number. So then if that if you didn't have that energy piece pushing it up, you know, that we would have, to your point, already, you know, we would have lower inflation numbers we'd be dealing with so that right. I could see what you mean by it prolonged it and also exacerbated it. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, really food, energy and, and rents are going to be the three big ones to watch. And, you know, oil and gas now are already down big from, from where they were in June. So that particular contributor in July should be, you know, unless you get a big spike at the end of this month or something, um, that should already start to kind of tamp it down a little bit. Um, and then food, you know, that's a little bit tougher to, to game. I don't know much about exactly how that all plays out. And then rent, you know, the way it's kind of, there's, it's kind of quirky the way that rent gets factored into the CPI. It, it goes on a big lag. So all the rent that's hitting the CPI now is really like the rent growth from like almost a year ago. It's like nine to 12 months is when the big rent growth actually makes its way into the CPI. So that's the one component that's actually going to start pushing CPI up as everything else is going to fall. So it's going to be kind of a little bit of that you know, energy coming down while rents are going up kind of thing. So even though I think rents are probably starting to flatten out a little bit right now and, and their growth is going to start to moderate in, in real terms or in, in real time, it's not going to filter into that CPI for another six to nine months either. So it'll be really interesting to watch how that all plays out. But I think, again, if you just go back to longer term, like structurally what's happening, and it's it's clear that we're we have the, the economy from a structural standpoint that is supportive of, of just that low inflation, low growth. So I think the burden of proof is on the people that think we're in a new regime now. You know, I think, you know, the high, the high as crazy as it sounds for me inflation. to say, right. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds for me to say like, oh, we're going to go back to these inflation rates. Like all I'm really saying is that the economy is going to go back to being the way it always was after this crazy COVID stimmy nonsense happened. Right. So the people that are saying like we have something entirely different now where we're going to have long term sustained inflation i think really that that side of the argument and they could be right i mean i'm not saying where would that I come from answer, though but, i mean the right. supply chain will eventually get fixed and population's only growing so much i mean what's what's it going to come from right the only thing i well so there, there's a decent argument that i've heard that it's going to come from deglobalization the idea that part of the reason why inflation was so low is because we could offshore so much stuff and take advantage of the really cheap labor in China and in other places. And because of what happened with COVID, people want their supply chains closer to home. So they're going to bring more stuff here, which means higher wages and, and you know more expensive stuff. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. It's it's reasonable to think some of that's going to happen. But even that, it's you're not you're not waving a magic wand and creating more human beings to do the work, right? And and so if you don't have more people working you, know, you got to find a way to make them more productive. Otherwise, you're still just not going to get that that growth. So the only other thing that I could think of is sort of a psychological shift for inflation because the one piece that we haven't really talked about is the psychology of inflation. And there certainly is something to that, right, where you worry that my dollars are becoming more and more worthless, so I better go spend them now before they get even more worthless. Um, you kind of lose faith in the government's ability to pay off their debts, and you think that they're just going to kind of keep printing. Um 
that could happen. You know, that's what happens like in Zimbabwe and stuff when people just all of a sudden lose faith and it wouldn't happen to that scale here, but that's possible too. Um, there's no evidence of that happening. And when you look around the world, you look at, you know, I think we're just the cleanest dirty shirt in that department. So, you know, China, no one's going to use Chinese currency or think that that's going to be any better. You can't trust that Europe's in worse shape than we are. Japan's in worse shape than we are. So you look around and you say, well, what, you know, who could, who would, you know, where would you go if you didn't want to get rid of dollars? And the fact is that, you know, we're just the safe haven country. So our bonds and our dollar are going to have a constant bid under them. So I don't see that um, being the case either, but you know, we'll see time will tell, but I think by this time next year, I mean, we're going to know one way or the other, but I think it's going to be, we're going to be back to like the post GFC time frame where it's like the fed's trying their best to get 2% inflation if they could even get it kind of thing. Yeah. And then the fed can say, we did our job, right. the rates, we fixed everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. All good. But yeah, that in the psychological component, that's a good point. Cause then, uh, I've seen that sort of a, a little bit just anecdotally like currently. And then something my, uh, parents talked about when they bought a house So my, uh, both my parents are born sort of at the tail end of the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. So the, my dad's always talked about, I, kind of had like a bad deal if you will like in from just a purchasing things the baby boomers were always in front of me mm. pushing up the prices of houses or whatever um and the way he described those the early 70s with inflation was um they bought a house i think it was in 1972 1973 mm -hmm. and they were like if we didn't buy a house that year we would never be able to afford one they were going up 12 percent 15 percent a year if we didn't, if you, you know, say your house was, uh, their house was a hundred thousand dollars and the next year it's going to be 115. The next, the way this is a psychological, you don't know for sure it's going to go 15% year, you know, but the way he felt was if I wait in five years, this thing, it's going to be like one, 160 something. Right. So then he, so then they stepped up, pulled that purchase forward, uh, and for what their incomes were, got real aggressive on what they bought. Um, so that's, uh, and then today I heard, uh, one of my one of my sister's friends was talking about a car they were trying to buy, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> he was having a real hard time getting in this new car he wanted, and he was under the impression that used cars now have they're just more they're actually more expensive than new cars, mm. and that you know that's used car prices have they have gone up in the last crazy couple of years we've had, but they're not generally unless it's like a car that is under just crazy demand like some of these Teslas were or if you want to get like the new Range Rover that just came out but yeah things do go over list price um but that's not uh your average used car did not all of a sudden that's like three years old just triple in value and go up past but that was his impression so he <laughs> was like I never looked at used cars I thought they're more than new now <laughs> and he's not he's like a smart guy and right. so he's just the thing was he just heard it's prices are going up on used cars and kind of took that as like, why would I buy a used one that I'm actually buy a new one at a regular price, if right. you will. Yeah. So, but, and I think you bring up a good point in general too, which is just like how much the, the narrative of the day impacts people without really like deeply looking into it. Right. And it goes all the way back to what we started talking about with the fed, right. When you just see a headline that says the feds raising rates, you think, Oh, my rate is going to go up or, you know, you right. just think it's a, you're right. You hear used car prices are going up, so it must be the wrong time to buy it. But I think so much is really just driven by that. You got to be careful to kind of dig in under the surface and really see what's going on. Yeah. So then to guess to kind of wrap up the inflation talk is what do you think the fed should be doing differently? Or is there anything you would, if you were running the fed, what would you <laughs> be doing now? Well, if I was running the fed, I would abolish the fed and then I would resign. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that's, I think that they can't do as much as they, people think they can do either. Right. They have this 
this tool that they can move the interest rates around and they can try to, you know, talk the market into doing what they want them to do. You know, the expectations channel, they'll call it. So like if you saw uh, like the two year, the run up in the two year treasury, a big chunk of that was when they started talking about how much they were going to raise rates and it kind of shot up at the short end to front run them. So they can have some impact, but I think a lot of their impact is really on financial markets and, and you know, putting a bunch of liquidity into the system so that capital markets go crazy and you get higher stock prices and people wanting to lend and borrow and things like that. But um, in terms of controlling inflation, I don't think, I mean, they could do it if they try hard enough, right? If they want to raise the rate really high to the point where, you know, financial assets collapse and the wealth effect takes over, people don't want to spend anymore or people get so worried about it that they really pull pull back, they can, they can have some impact. And then, you know, if they can get borrowing costs on the short end high enough to really start to impact people's, you know, buying decisions they can have a little bit of an impact but um you you even heard powell say it right I, I remember the the line where he said oh we're we're learning how much we don't actually know about inflation so basically like admitting that they don't really even know how much inflation is going to go up and then i was listening to his last conference as well and he said um a big portion of this inflation is energy related and we can't control energy prices yet we're still going to keep raising rates until we see the cpi go down so like they'll even admit to you that like a lot of this stuff is somewhat out of their control. Right. Um, if you, if you parse their comments enough. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they're doing a decent job, you know, slowing down some industries where, you know, for me and you in real estate, it feels like, <clears throat> you know, why would anyone be, be doing this? You're raising rates. It's harder to, to do these deals now with higher interest costs. Um, but that's in a way sort of their goal for the average person living in this country. Like they're not, they're not concerned with what interest rates are necessarily. Right. They're worried about the price of gas and food. Like they're not making these, uh, you know, these types of investments, you know, right. they're, they're, there might be a customer of them. They're a renter, but yeah, that's cause then the, you know, you raise the short term rates and there's going to be uh, shopping centers or apartment buildings that would have been bought. That might've been a deal where you're going to buy it. You're going to renovate it. Then you're going to, put your permanent loan on later or sell it. And then that would be one of the SOFR plus whatever spread right. deals where now the rates higher deal doesn't look as good. Maybe it doesn't happen. The current owner says, well, if that's the price, I I, would, I don't want it. I think this, this interest rate stuff, it'll, they agree with you. It's going to be kind of shake that is going to shake out in like a year or two. And I don't need to, I don't need to sell today. Right. And that's now that's one less construction project uh, for people to work on. That's one less, thing for a lender to do there's less work for attorney like so they are they are slowing down some things because i got to imagine that the transaction volume in real estate's going to be slower i mean we've personally we've seen in some of these deals where it was real reliant on that sort of short-term borrowing and and also future growth let's say where you're buying and you're banking in a lot of growth and taking on you know and something that you're not holding long term either you're making a real tough bet now on like where interest is going to be in two years uh, what's going to happen with my rents. If you're buying something long-term, that's going to smooth out. You know, if you share the view you do and similar to mine where you're, you're going to do a seven-year hold. This is just going to be a, a, maybe a choppy first couple of years, but it's still, you're going to like your basis. I mean, there's all very few periods of time. Like if you look at it over seven years or you went to done well in a real estate deal. So, but to kind of tie that into inflation, like they are having some impact because they've, they've slowed down I think the housing market and some of these, you know, commercial transactions. Yeah. Some so. of that's definitely occurring and it's occurring more really in the capital market side, right? Like you said, with people not being able to be as flexible with some of the loan terms and some of that needs to happen because it was really frothy, but some of that 
that fro- you also remember the froth was created by their low interest rates in the first place, right? So it's kind of like, um, to me, like I don't think that any human being should have the hubris to think that they can like manually command and control the economy and get things right. And I think as you, that's why the Fed has a, has a reputation for overshooting on both ends and, and creating these bubbles. And you know, I think if you look at most of the the boom bust cycles that have occurred in the past, a lot of that is really caused by the Fed to a large degree because of the fact that they'll manipulate interest rates where differently than they would otherwise be. And then you get, you know, money going to places where it otherwise shouldn't go, whether it be the housing bubble or even the the dot-com bubble. And then what, what kind of comes from that, the bubble that we just got now with all this stimulus, um, the inevitable downside to that is the bust that comes, right? It comes again because the economic gravity that we talked about, can't, can't grow things faster than their underlying rate for too long before something, something blows up. So, you know, I think I would prefer to see, markets decide and price risk in their interest rates appropriately um, because then you usually don't get that kind of froth in the first place where somebody can get some stupid loan because you know rates are held artificially low rather, rather than where they should be based on where risk is pricing in the economy so if the fed does have a role if you want to twist my arm and say i couldn't abolish them i guess i would say um you know just make it so that there's liquidity available at, at overnight rates to the banks so that like systemically there's no risk right so like a bank gets a big run on deposits or something like that they can go borrow money from the fed temporarily if they put up collateral and, and they pay a penalty rate or something just to like stabilize the system but outside of that i think they're causing way more harm than good and then just get rid of the fed funds rate as like an official rate yeah let the service. repo markets and the overnight you know lending markets take just, care of it just know? figure out what that should be and the fed can just be there as a backstop in case things get really crazy and you need temporary liquidity or something yeah, yeah. or if there had to be a fed funds rate you would just say all right we're just going to pick a rate that makes sense based on the growth it's going to be just like one percent forever kind of thing or not shouldn't be zero you know or 25 bips like it was but it, yeah i mean you like to see like it that. floating with the market right so that the market could determine that and the market's going to be a lot better at figuring out when it it should go higher because there's too much risk you know um but if you were going to manually set it maybe the closest thing you could do is what they call the taylor rule which basically takes economic factors and says that there really should be no guesswork to it you should basically calculate where inflation and a few other things are and then just peg the rate to that which i guess that would be better than you know just kind of what i view as fairly arbitrary um with how they're doing it now but yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of odd that most people, especially people in business, we realize things like rent control are, are ridiculous and stupid. And, you know, anytime that the government tries to step in and plan too much stuff, the results are always bad, right? Yet, like these guys in the Fed get to plan interest rates and try to plan where prices are in the economy and, you know, interest rates are the price of money and you price so much stuff off of those interest rates that like, but they just get a complete pass, right? Like nobody thinks, yeah. should we have these guys planning all that stuff, even though it's terrible in every other aspect of the economy when we try that so yeah it's all because i mean it's well intentioned i mean right with rent control i mean they're trying to help out people that can't afford their rent and then same thing with this you know we're trying to help the economy not get too overheated or too uh you know too slow but then it's always overshoot like you're saying and create a new problem right so same thing right i think what didn't seattle or washington they needed like they're floating this amazon tax idea i don't remember if it ever went through but all of a sudden there's you know uh headquarters number two coming you know mm-hmm. it's like this uh yeah great plan floating that idea out there right so. yeah and i'm not much of a politics guy you just consider that broadly a waste of time but sometimes it just intersects with economics to the point where you you know you make comments on it that might sound political but i don't really have a political dog in the fight one way or the other it's just a matter of thinking about like what what actually happens what actually matters in the economy and how those things are going to impact 
you know, the real world outcome. So, yeah, that's how I feel too. And even, you know, we, we live in Illinois, so it, you know, whoever's going to represent us is basically, it's like a, it's like a certainty when we're voting anyways, oh, sure. you know, yeah. so it's not, <laughs> you know, we're not in a swing state here, so right. it doesn't, um, but yeah. So what about, I guess, anything else maybe that you have, uh, understanding on with interest rates or commercial real estate that you've sort of figured out and think would be good to share with people listening and watching because some maybe you feel like maybe you have a good handle on but like a lot of people don't let's say that's a good or, question or less, less common i guess uh yeah i mean i feel like a lot of what i've been talking about has really just been the interest rates and, and long-term bond yields and what drives them right i think we we covered that pretty well because i think that that's really the key here is that you got to got to dig under the surface and see what's going on and not just assume that because inflation is high it's the same as the last one or, or think that bond rates can just be high just because they were high before um those kind of things so i would kind of stress you know thinking through breaking the economy down into like the base layer of what you know what's expected and then and then you kind of it helps you to understand going forward kind of how how that looks and then i think at least from like the Twitter standpoint, I think if there's something that I would stress to people that are out there that are like getting started new, it would just be that you got to really understand what's going on with your leverage in real estate. I think I see a lot on Twitter about people advocating um, for just leverage, right? Like the way, the way to get into real estate, you know, the reason why real estate is great is because you can borrow all this money that you don't need to put up yourself and then you can get these huge returns and you've got like this, you know, 10, 12 year track record now of everybody doing that and making a killing and then going and, you know, bragging to their friends about all the money they're making in real estate. But I would just emphasize that you need to know, especially in a market like this where rates have been rising and where, you know, we may see a little bit of a plateau in NOI growth, that if you're leveraged like crazy and you're, you have, you know, a refinance coming up or a bridge loan, like you talked about or something, the margin for error on something like that can be a lot lower than you think before you can get into serious trouble. So, you know, if you have like an 85% LTV bridge loan and you need rents to go up 10%, 20% a year to get to the point where it makes sense for you and otherwise, and then your, your loans come and do in 18 months, it doesn't take much of, you know, rents don't even have to go down. They just have to not go up as much as you think. And cap rates don't even have to really go crazy. But if they're up 25, 50 basis points, you can all of a sudden be in a position where your loan amount is higher than the value that you're going to get. And you're going to end up giving the keys back to the bank. So if people are out there, like just getting started right now, like the one thing to really focus on is like understand deal structure and how that will impact your investment and how that impacts your risk. And you could do, you could really de-risk a deal by just not going crazy on leverage. And if you get a long-term fixed rate loan, like, you know, if you can do a 55% LTV loan and you know, it's a 10 year loan based off the 10 year treasury, the odds that something really bad happens to you, if you have a good stabilized deal in a good market are very, very low. Right. And if you're toward the top of the cycle, maybe just be okay with that instead of trying to hit a massive leveraged home run out of the gate uh, right now. Um, I think that just makes a ton of sense to do that rather than worrying about where things are going to be in, in 12 to 18 months and whether or not you're going to, you know, owe a bunch of money to the bank and declare bankruptcy and everything else. So that's kind of what I would have people focus on, I think. Yeah, that's where real estate usually is not such a make money quick game mm -hmm. like it's felt like it's been the last few years. Right. And so that's that's a great point where I think one of my best deals so far I bought in March 2007, but it was a 10 year hold. That's why like it wasn't it wasn't I didn't need to sell it in 2009 or 10. Mm -hmm. And there was some element of value add. It was a three unit and then I doubled the size of one of the units and I 
over time reinvested in the property a ton and improved it. But I bought it for 670,000 and sold it for a million two, two. And so that's, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a, a ton of investors to answer to on that in a two year loan or something where this, I had a, that was just, it was a 30 year loan. Um, that it was, it was a five year arm or a three year arm. I think it was a five year. I remember really kicking myself cause I paid a higher rate to get that, you know, mm-hmm. lock it longer. I was seven, it was seven and a half percent interest. And I paid up, I think where I could have had a, something in the, in the low sevens or high sixes to do a three year. Okay. But that was a really sweet rate in 2007 yeah. for that kind of product at least. Um, so that I was, uh, remember paid up for that. And mm-hmm. then, but you know, then I, I, kept it and when the rate adjusted it dropped and um everything was just clicking right along with the deal so i you know it's turned out because i had a good hold period and i didn't i didn't term out so to speak and have a hard maturity at any point when things got tough so that that would be a tip i would throw in to build on that where right if on these deals the longer you can spread out you can get a further out maturity even if it's not a full fixed rate term but like i mean Freddie Mac Small Balance has a really great program mm-hmm. where you can get a five, seven, 10 year fix from them, but they they have the option where you, you can get a 20 year term on that. Oh, wow. So if you're in these, this for deals where the loan amounts under 5 million in most markets and under seven and a half in the major markets like Chicago and the bigger, bigger, bigger markets. And then to, to add on to that, like something you could put in your model, uh, which we have and you realize the necessity for it is, to your point, you, you see what your current loan balance is, um, and then make up, make two more pro formas on that where one would be, all right, well now when I'm going to have to refinance, let's say you have your three year loan, yep. have two pro formas next to that one where you, your rents didn't grow at all. Right. And then just stress test what you need to just refi your current balance. Cause I mean, right now, if you were to go, all right, I buy a deal. And I'm assuming you know, I'm going to grow my rents 5% a year or whatever the buyer's doing. And, you know, f- what, six months ago, what, what would we be assuming for our interest rate in three years? You know, right. four and a half, maybe you think you're getting aggressive. On, yeah. I'll be, I'll add a hundred bips on, you know, I'll be conservative yeah. and poof, they go to five and a half. Right. And so now you change the thing and say, what does it look like at five and a half? And yeah, if you did a 75%, 80% LTC, LTV loan, you're not you're not going to be able to refi your balance and you're going to be, you're going to be a forced seller or you're doing a capital call and who knows if your investors are up for that. Right. So that's something to build into your model. And then I guess they said three performance because one would be kind of your day one. One would be, what does it look like if I didn't grow my rents and then, you know, have one, what it looks like when you do grow your rents, kind of what you assumed would happen. But still with that, even really stress test the different growth rates and yeah. interest rates you need. Yeah. I so. love that idea. And I like, I like doing it a few different ways too, right? What are you, what kind of exit cap would you need? What kind of, you know, what kind of rent growth would you need to keep your, you know, DSCR covenants in play, right? Or how, how low could rent growth drop before you hit a 120 or a 110 or a one flat or whatever it might be? Um, yeah, I think that's hugely valuable. And if you do that enough, you'll realize like, what are the big drivers here and what are the big potential killers and and it's always leverage and it's always like i think your example term. is perfect you know the term if you have a gun to your head and you, you become a forced seller like that deal was a great deal but if you if your loan was maturing in march of 09 or something like that you might have just lost the whole deal right yeah or i would have i would have sold it for like what i paid and mm-hmm. then some my equity would have been basically 
pretty well not would have been pretty close to wiped out with all the transaction costs that's right. what would have happened right so that's the key right is you guys keep yourself from being a forced seller and you do that by getting enough term and, and not screwing around too much with leverage i mean there may be a time and a place for it you know especially if you feel like you're at the bottom of the cycle and you want to take a big a big swing but you know be really aware of the fact that you know that can that can take you to zero in a hurry if you're not careful yeah and i think that's uh that's a good point to to end on i mean i think that's uh anything else you wanted to get into or what's what we no i think that's a great conversation i think uh, we covered a lot of ground there but great yeah, yeah thanks for being on if anybody watching listening they want to get in touch with you what would be the best way to do that uh yeah, just hit me up on twitter i think phil underscore McAllister on twitter you'll probably find me there and get into it feel free to shoot me a dm or whatever i'm always happy to talk to people and, and talk shop so it's a lot of fun yeah great yeah thanks for being on and a, a lot of good information on your your twitter feed or whatever it's called the uh yeah. page with all the tweets but that's yeah and we'll we'll link to that in the the show notes or description of this episode so you can you can find that but yeah thanks for being on awesome. thanks Drew. great until next time everyone thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode thanks for joining us on the rise and invest podcast please be sure to hit that subscribe button on youtube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts if you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.